Today, we will dive into the world of the written word in the quilting industry with an author and writer who has broached the topics of quilting arts, quilting history, Japanese contemporary quilts, cotton and indigo, and social justice, just to name a few. Today, I'll have a chat with Teresa Duryea Wong. Hello and welcome to the Quilter on Fire podcast, where I explore the stories, the connections, and the joy of guests in the quilting world that will bring you more joy and less overwhelm on your own creative path. I'm your host, Brandy Maslowski, also known as the Quilter on Fire, and I can't wait to share this week's episode with you. So here we go. Today on the podcast, I interview a quilter and scholar who is best known for her prolific and meaningful writing in the quilting world. She was recently a teacher and speaker at QuiltCon 2023. She has published five quilt history textile books and will dive into the pages of her brand new books as well. She has written for dozens of magazines and presented lectures all over the world. She has had the honor of serving as a board member of the International Quilt Museum in Lincoln, Nebraska, scholar in residence at the Visions Art Museum in San Diego, and Bybee scholar at the Texas Quilt Museum and Bybee Foundation. Foundation. In her fifth book, she co-authored Stitching Stolen Lives, the Social Justice Sewing Academy Remembrance Project with Sarah Trail. So we will talk all about that one for sure. So let's get this conversation started with Teresa Duryea Wong. Teresa, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Brandy. It's a real honor to be invited to be on your show. You've done such a great job with this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you. So let's take a little look back at where you got started. When do you first remember putting stitch to fabric? I started sewing and making clothes and doing embroidery very young, probably around the age of eight. And a lady across the street was an embroiderer, and I used to go hang out at her house, and she taught me how. And my grandmother sewed, and she taught me to sew as well as my mom. I started quilting, though, much later in 1998. There were quilts in my family, but I had never made any. And my grandmother made them, but I had never made any. And I have a really good friend, and she is an amazing quilter. And I went to her home one day and just saw all these works of art, and I was hooked. So what was it about what you saw in her house that really drew you in? She is a, a real folk art quilt maker and does a lot of like Sue Spargo type quilts and patterns and kits. And I know you had Sue on not too long ago. I loved listening to her. And she had done a lot of embroidery. So I think maybe the embroidery drew me in initially and the hand quilting. But she taught me how and I kind of just took it from there. I just love how they are very much like a fine art form, but you know, with the what we love so much of stitching. Yeah, it's so great that you had those creative influences early on from your family to your friend. And of course, that kind of quilting, the folk art is just bursting with color as well. So can you tell us about your very first quilt? Yes, I made it for my daughter's bed in the collaboration with my best friend, Amy Gerhikian, the one that taught me how to sew. And it was all applique. It was really sweet. I still have it. And Amy helped me hand quilt it. In fact, she was a hand quilter. And so I was a hand quilter. And I did hand quilting for almost 15 years. But that was my first one. And it was it was really fun. So I want to talk a bit about your quilting before we get into the writing. So how did your quilting blossom from there? Did you change types of quilting over time? Absolutely. I started out, you know, 
I made a couple of original quilts, but I made a lot of patterns and more traditional quilts. I love doing applique too. And I did a lot of hand applique. And as I said, I was hand quilting. So I wasn't as prolific because it takes a long time. And I, you know, had two kids and a husband and a full-time job. And so <laughs> I wasn't making as many, but about t- 10 years ago, I guess, or somewhere in that time frame, I really shifted to much more contemporary style. And now I just make original designs. Um, I do a lot of art quilts and a lot of modern quilts and kind of all over the place in terms of style, but mostly much more on the contemporary side. Yeah, just so fun. It's so nice to see how you've evolved over the years. So tell us, where are you living now and who are your loved ones that you share your world with every day? Yes, I live in Houston. I'm a native, born and raised here. And we were out in the suburbs for a long time when our kids were growing up, and then they left and we moved back into the city. So we live in a really, really urban part of town, not too far from downtown. When the giant International Quilt Festival is here, I'm only about five minutes away. So we live in a three-story townhouse, and we're very close to the Memorial Park, which is like the Houston's version of Central Park in New York. It's huge. So even though I live in a super urban area, I'm really close to great park space. And I live with my husband. He is a television news photographer and our dog, Tom. And yeah, our kids have moved away. Oh, I love it when people give animals people names. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now you are in the business of writing and your business is actually your name as an author. So give us your business kind of elevator pitch. What do you, how would you describe what you do? I really love researching stories and bringing them to life. It's, you know, I think that I never really learned history as a student. I think I, you know, all of my, when I look back at college and you know even high school all my history classes were awful and i hated history and now i love it because you really can you know you learn so much from what we did in the past but there's just so much that you can go out and find and bring to life and i think as a historian which i think is a good word for what i do it's a really great way to bring things to life and sort of put them in context, sort of put them in a timeline of where we are today and explain why they were important, why they mattered, and, you know, why what happened 50 years ago or 60 years ago or 100 years ago, how it influenced where we are today. Um, And so those are really the stories I like to dig out and, and bring to life. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny that you say that because now that I think back, I really didn't enjoy history in school either. But now that I've had people on my podcast like you and the six know-it-alls and those kind of people, they've really opened my eyes to some of the history and some of the incredible fine art that has been made over time. Yeah. So I'm really excited to chat with you about all of this today. I remember when we were taught history, you know, you yeah. we were taught dates, right? Like you yeah. had to remember this exact date and this year who cares? You know, what's really important is the story. And if you remember the story, you'll know what time frame it took place. But, you know, the the day and the year is not what's the most important in history. That's so true. Now, did you make a transition from another career before quilting? Yes. So I started my career as a journalist, actually. I have a degree in communications. I worked in television news in Houston at the local level for quite a while, about seven years. And then I 
freelanced for a while writing and I published a magazine for a couple of years. This is a very long story in my career. That's okay. What was the magazine <laughs> called? I did a fine art magazine and it was called Museum and Arts Houston. And we focused on the fine art scene and also performing arts in the Houston area. And then after that, I joined the corporate world. And I actually was about 25 years in the oil and gas industry because I live in Houston. So if you want to work in Houston, you're going to end up in the oil and gas industry, most likely. And so I was doing public affairs and communications and government affairs and investor relations for about 25 years. So I several different companies yeah, and kind of worked my way up to as far as I could go before the ceiling hit and became an executive and traveled all over the world. So I traveled a lot, probably 60% of the time. Most of the countries that have oil, I've, I've been there. And so you actually mentioned earlier on you're in the TV industry. Is that where you met your husband? Yes. It yeah, is. Oh, that's so sweet. And he still works in television, but now he works freelance, but mostly for ABC News, Good Morning America, and ABC Nightly News, things like that. Yeah, great. And so over the years, as you sort of transitioned towards the end of this 25-year career, was there kind of a defining moment when you thought, okay, I need to follow my passion, or this is my thing, I can do this quilting thing for a living? Yes. In 2013, I left my corporate job. And I was trying to decide what to do. And I was thinking about, you know, continuing my career, maybe in a different industry. And within a couple of weeks, I said, no more, that's enough. I had done the corporate thing. And it wasn't maybe two or three weeks after that, I decided I had already loved Japan and Japanese quilting. I was very enamored with it and very much in love with the Japanese fabrics. And so that's, It was just maybe six weeks after I left that job, I decided I'm going to Japan and I'm going to write a book. Wow. Now you've been quilting for a long time, but you're known for your writing. What you bring to the quilting world is the history and the culture. So, you know, when did you start feeling like you needed to speak out or write about things? Like, was it that first trip to Japan that kind of triggered this needs to be a book? Yes. When I started learning about the history of quilting in Japan, I wanted to know how it happened and, you know, how did they come to quilt and why are their quilts so gorgeous? Why are they so different from the quilts that are made in the Western side of the world? And when I started learning this story, I thought this just, it's just so incredible. This story has to be told. And that's when I, yeah, I set out to my first trip there and I went on my own. I stayed about a month, but I went as, you know, for business, right? I was there working. So I was meeting Mm -hmm. with curators and museums and meeting quilters and going to places where textiles are sold and those things. So it was jetting all over, actually. I'm really excited to dive into each one of these books that you've written. So let's start off. Like these are not, I've had dozens of writers, authors on my podcast, but you are not writing pattern books or how-to books. You're writing history books, really. And so let's talk about the first book, Japanese Contemporary Quilts, The Story of American Import. 
Yeah. So that's the first one that I started at all and launched my whole writing career. I was not known by anybody when I set out to do that book and certainly not known by anyone in Japan. And it took, you know, a lot of emailing and introductions and introductions and introductions to finally get my way in to get these interviews and to do all this research. And it was just a really fascinating journey. Once I got to Japan, I spent about six months researching, trying to get people to accept me to come and let me interview them, which was odd for them because it's not a lot of Japanese people don't normally invite strangers to their home. It's much more traditional, maybe to meet at a restaurant or something. But I needed to go into people's studios and see where they work and see yeah. their quilts. So I ended up going to about a dozen different homes and interviewing people. Wow. And I think my style of writing is probably different maybe than what a lot of other people bring to the table because of my journalism background. Mm -hmm. So I have a way, I think what I try to do is make it very approachable. I'm not writing like an academic. I'm not writing something that's dry or, you know, hard to swallow. I try to make it very conversational and, you know, interesting to read and really finding the stories and bringing those stories out. Yeah. And I can tell that just by the title of your second book, because you have literally picked the two words in the quilting industry that are the most bite-sized chewable words that we could get. You have (laughs) cotton, which all quilters love cotton, but then you have indigo, which I mean, when I hear the word indigo, I think, oh, I want to die. I want to use those beautiful blues. So let's talk about cotton and indigo from Japan, history of cotton. Yes. So when I was writing this book about the history of how quilting came to be in Japan, there was just so much. And I was so much more I wanted to put in there, but you have to stay focused. Otherwise, you're going to have, you know, a 900 page book. Yeah. So I just had to come back and do some more. And it was really interesting when I first started speaking to people about quilting. And, you know, of course, you have to learn about textiles to learn about quilting. And a lot of people think of Japan as a silk country, people outside Mm -hmm. our industry. I mean, they think Japan is only silk, Mm -hmm. but quilters know that, you know, there's a lot of cotton, beautiful folk textiles made from cotton, and a lot of them are indigo dyed. And so it was just natural to come back and tell the story at the same time that you have this lovely centuries old traditions of folk textiles made with cotton, you also have this incredible technology for printing new quilting cotton. And even still today, the finest quilting cotton comes from Japan, printed commercial quilting cotton. So I really wanted to tell those two stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's what I did with Cotton and Indigo from Japan. And it was really funny when I started interviewing experts and scholars about the history of cotton, they would say, why are you interested in cotton? It's such a new fiber. It's only been here for like 400 years. (laughs) I thought... (laughs) That's hilarious. It's not not worth talking about yet because it's only 400 years old. (laughs) That's so funny. And it's actually 600 years old to be technically accurate. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. The difference in age, you know, from a country that, you know, the country I live in being only a couple hundred years in terms of the democracy. People, of course, have been here a lot longer. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just so interesting. So I just really, really enjoyed it. And I I spent time with a natural indigo dyer up in the hills outside of Kyoto, and it was just fascinating. 
And I also managed to work my way inside one of the premier textile printing mills for quilting cotton. And it was very difficult. And I had to assure them that I would not share any trade secrets. And then mm-hmm. once I got inside that one, I was able to get into the second one because, you know, they're very competitive with each other. Yeah. So that was just fascinating being inside the printing mills. Oh, that is so cool. And so right now I'm just imagining someone listening to the podcast right now. And I'm thinking if you're ever dreaming of going to Japan or you're planning a trip, this it would be so cool to get these two books and pour through them before you go on a holiday like that. And there are Japanese, there are tours where you can go and, you know, you could go on your own as well. Japan is just such a welcoming country, right? It is very welcoming. It's very safe. A lot of the subways and trains are bilingual and people are so, so friendly and so welcoming. And I do not speak Japanese and I've been seven times and never had a problem. So you can manage if you can say a few words and if you're polite you can get around. It's pretty easy. That sounds great. I would love to take my husband and my son there. I mean, go together as a family holiday. That would just be a dream. Okay. So let's dive into book number three, Magic and Memories, 45 Years of the International Quilt Festival. Yeah. So I, because I live in Houston, I have been to the International Quilt Festival every year since I started quilting in 1998 and never missed one. And I became really interested in the story of the two women who founded the International Quilt Festival are from Houston. They both grew up in Houston. And once I had the opportunity to meet them, I was really interested in their story. So this book is, it's, it is really, truly the biography of these two women. You don't really know that from the title of the book, but that's really what it is. And it's Carrie Bresenhan and Nancy O'Brien Puentes. They are they have accomplished amazing things in our quilt industry. And the two of them are actually cousins. They were raised as sisters. And they're very, very close. And it took me a long time to talk them into allowing me to write this book. I wrote it as an independent writer. I wasn't, you know, part of their company or anything like that. And so we spent about a year doing interviews, maybe it was actually more a little, maybe two years because we had to spread them out because they're so busy. But um, many, many day long interviews at Carrie's home, just talking about all of the things that they have accomplished starting around the very late 70s, and they were really influential up until really up through around 2000. Well, it sounds like a really good story. And, you know, I think if you're walking around the International Quilt Festival, you don't really think about how did this all begin? Like, what on earth, what was the seed that started this show that is just so massive, you can barely even take the entire thing in, in the amount that the show is on. It's an exciting show. And I recommend if you've never been there to go and check it out. So let's move into your fourth book, which is actually a book that is sold out right now. It's called American Cotton Farm to Quilt. Tell us about that. So interestingly, when I was researching cotton in Japan, and I went and met with a lot of producers and textile manufacturers, and I went into a huge warehouse in Japan, and standing in front of me was sacks of cotton from cotton farms about 100 miles from my home. So I knew, of course, that, of course, the United States is a large cotton producer. We're the third largest 
next to China and India. And Texas uh, produces half of America's cotton crop. So I just thought it was really fascinating that I'm researching cotton in Japan and I'm seeing all this Texas cotton in Japanese cotton warehouses. And not only that, I also was aware that Japan is an importer of American cotton because it is the finest quality cotton in the world. So it goes into very, very high-end products in Japan that's not mass-produced and not really necessarily quilting cotton. So I thought I need to dig into this story. So I went to meet with some cotton farmers about their exports to Japan. And then I, I said, I have to come back and tell this story. So it was after I finished Magic and Memories, kind of in the same process, I decided to really tell this story of what's happening on the cotton farm today. And it's not really a history of the cotton farming. It's really about the amazing technological changes that have happened on the cotton farms today. And then uh, some history of the textile mills and how a product becomes, you know, from a seed in the ground to what we put into our quilts. Yeah. And along the way, I tell the story of a couple different companies who are making 100% American-grown and American-made textiles, one of them being American-made brand, which is owned by Clothworks out of Seattle. And their fabric is all 100% American-grown cotton and made in American textile mills, primarily in South Carolina, as well as our batting. Both Hobbs and the Warm Company all buy cotton from American farmers, and 100% of their cotton and their batting is American cotton. So I had to go and just tell those stories. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've had so much fun with Stephanie from Hobbs Batting. The quilters loved that episode and they loved the Christmas event that I did with her so much. I had hundreds of people attend. It was great. That's wonderful. Quilters love to know about their batting. Yeah. And they're made in Waco, which is also pretty close to me. Yeah, so great. Okay, so the fifth book is Stitching Stolen Lives with the Social Justice Sewing Academy Remembrance Project. So tell us all about that. Yeah, so this is a book that was co-authored with Sarah Trail. Sarah's the founder of the Social Justice Sewing Academy, as I'm sure many people have heard her story. And Sarah and I started working together on a new project that she had launched at the time, which is the Remembrance Project. And this is a project to make blocks, mostly their portraiture, but they don't have to be, of people whose lives have been taken. The vast majority of the people that we are honoring are victims of police brutality and police shootings, but it's also other crimes, domestic crimes, people on the list who are missing, murdered Indigenous women and many other different cases of violence, gender, race, all of those things. And so we worked together on the project and decided we really wanted to document it as we were going along, and that we really wanted to tell the stories from all sides. So we asked volunteers to make blocks. We gave them a specific size. We assigned them the name of a victim. We asked the volunteer to go and research the victim because we want them to be engaged in the process and to learn as much as they can. And as many times as we could, we tried to assign them a victim that lived within 10 or 20 miles of their home. And for a lot of quilters, this is really their only interaction sometimes with people of different races or different socioeconomic status, different, you know, definitely 
people with different backgrounds. And so it's engaging on all levels. So we're engaging the maker, honoring the victim. And then we would take those blocks and made them into banners. Mm-hmm. And the banners have been shown in museums all over the country and yeah. continue to be shown in museums all over the country. And the second part of that project is making quilts that we give to families of victims. So sometimes we're using the victim's photos in those quilts. And so both of those stories are told in the book. So we, I interviewed quite a few of the mothers and grandmothers or sisters or friends of the victims who we have given the family quilts to, as well as makers who have made blocks, as well as other survivors. And all of those stories are captured in this book, in addition to some of the community quilts that Sarah has made in her workshops. And other people teach workshops now all over the country. And so we feature some of those young makers as well who are learning to sort of have their voice heard through fabric. Yeah. Just unusual. Yeah. And I was very lucky to have the pleasure to see a Social Justice Sewing Academy display at Houston in 2021. Mm -hmm. And I actually interviewed Sarah briefly for just like three, five minutes, something like that. I did a short interview with Sarah Trail, and that would be on my YouTube channel if you want to go find it. But it was wonderful. Yeah. It was such a telling project, like the display of banners and Mm -hmm. quilts that were there, just they told the story, they hit you in the face, kind of, they gave Mm -hmm. you a really strong message. And it was just, it was really profound. So I was really happy to be able to see that in person. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about social justice. And why, why is social justice and quilting such a meaningful topic for you personally? I think we as makers, you know, one of the ways we can deal with trauma or stress or anger is to turn toward our craft. And by keeping our hands busy, we can think about a lot of different things. And I know for me and for many other people that I that, you know, I've talked to over the years, it's just natural to turn toward craft to express yourself. And when you can do it in a way that is not you know, a lot of quilts that I make end up in my closet shelves, right? Or on the the couches of my friends. But if you can make something that's going to go out into the world and raise awareness and show people that these were human beings who were shot for many reasons, sometimes nothing other than the color of their skin or a momentary bad decision, you know, or no reason at all sometimes. And to just help, you know, really remember them and honor them. And I think craft and quilting is a really beautiful way to do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we have covered five of your books already, and you have two new books to talk about as well, but we will launch into those after the break. I'm so excited about that. So let's just give them a glimpse into your website. So what is your website and where are some of these books available? My website is my full name, Teresa Durier Wong. No H in Teresa. (laughs) And most of my books are for sale there. My American Cotton, as you said, is sold out. My Japanese books and the Magic and Memory books were all, all three of those were published by Schiffer Publishing and they're on Amazon. Okay, great. And who were the publishers of some of your more recent books? Yeah, so American Cotton, I decided to publish independently, as well as my new book that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. A lot of people say self-published, but 
having spent a whole career in communications, I feel like I have a lot of experience. So I independently published that under my own label. And the Stitching Stolen Lives was very generously published by CNT Publishing. They did an amazing job um, and lent a lot of support to that book. Yeah. And I was able to thumb through the book because when I had my booth at QuiltCon, I was right across from them. I was able to look through it and it is absolutely gorgeous. Okay. So you also write for dozens of magazines. So what is it about writing for publications that really resonates with you? It's quite, quite different than what I do in my books, which is what I really love. I'm a person that needs to keep really busy and I like diversity. And my research books, I will spend two or three years researching before I write the book and and it's published. With the magazine features, a lot of them are profiles, especially Quilt Folk. I write for Quilt Folk every issue. And so those are more, much more contemporary, much more feature oriented, which takes me really back to my journalism. Days, So it's just a really nice tie-in and I really enjoy meeting so many people and bringing out their own histories and kind of trying to tell their stories in a way that maybe someone hasn't done before, especially for the more famous people. And I just, I really, really enjoy writing those stories. Yeah. And Quilt Folk is very popular. Of course, I've had Michael on the podcast and you also write for curated quilts on a regular basis. I do. And I've been writing for them since their first year. So many, many, many issues. And I love, love, love working with those two women that own that magazine. And Amy and Christine just do such an amazing job. And I do write a history article for them. So my contribution to that is to kind of find you know, they set a theme, each magazine. And so I look back through history and kind of apply that to modern quilting. And why is this, you know, what happened to this theme back 100 years ago? And why does it matter to modern quilters? Yeah, that's so great. And tell us about Quilt Diary. That one's in Japan. Yes. So I write for Quilt Diary, which is a relatively new magazine, Quilt Diary Japan. And it's published by an amazing woman that I've known for many years, Naomi Ichikawa. Um, So I've started writing a column, giving sort of an international perspective. And I just really enjoy working with Naomi. I write the uh, column in English, of course, and Naomi has it translated into Japanese. So it's really fun. She sends me copies every time I open them. And of course, I can't read it, but I do love to uh, go back and see it and see all my pictures and the images in there. So that's really fun. And I, I love doing that because I feel like it's a way of giving back or sort of paying it forward, if you will, because so many people helped me when I went to Japan and so many people gave me their time and their talent and lent me books and pointed me in the right direction. And so I feel like it's a really great way to try to bring something back for them, many of whom are not traveling, you know, due to the pandemic. So I'm trying to sort of bring them the outside news back to their homes. Yeah. So you've done so many great things. How do you choose your next passion project? Oh, that's a tough one because I do juggle quite a few of them at one time. After spending so much time, you know, studying Japan and traveling to Japan, I really decided that I I wanted to look more at my own country and my own country's history and what am I missing? And I had 
been aware of Native American star quilts for quite a while, but that's really about the only thing I knew at the time. And so I've spent the last couple of years researching Native American history, and that has become my latest passion. Okay. And you are also involved in some incredible organizations. So let's talk about a few of those. Yes. So I am on the board of the International Quilt Museum in Lincoln, and I have been a fan of the International Quilt Museum since really the very, very early days when I first became aware of it. I've been there many times as a researcher and just gotten to know them a little bit over the years. And I guess two years ago, I was invited to be on the board. And that has just been an amazing experience. I love to support them and give back to them in a way. I'm, you know, giving back my time and talent for sure to help promote them. And it's just a an amazing group of people on that board. And I just feel like they're doing really incredible work. And they really live up to the international part of their name in terms of covering our quilting from a very, very global perspective. And I admire that in them. Yeah. I'm also just recently, two months ago, joined the board of the Quilt Alliance. And if you're not familiar with the Quilt Alliance, they're a, a nonprofit that has been around since the 90s. And they focus on a couple of different projects, but one of their major projects is called Saving Our Stories. And for someone like me, that's what I'm all about. So I am just thrilled to be a part of their board now. And we're going to be working on several different projects, working to increase sort of the this idea of saving our stories, um, particularly in Native American communities and others across America. Yeah, I was so delighted to hear that you were asked to be on that board because it seems like such a good fit. And when I saw their vendor booth at QuiltCon, I was chatting with a gal at the vendor booth there and all about labels. They were really trying to feature, let's get labels on quilts because that's so important. Absolutely. No more anonymous makers. I know. And then she also like, she went beyond that. I was like, yeah, labels are such an important thing. And I talk about it. She goes, but even more so make a video about your quilt. And I was like, okay. okay. I'll, Absolutely. I'll, yes. Make a video about every single quilt. But then again, if we do show our best bits, don't we? Yes. <laughs> so that yes. Could be, that could be a good way of keeping the history alive, right? Yes. Interestingly, okay. also the Quilt Alliance was founded by four women in the 1990s, right around the time of the Smithsonian controversy, which is a whole nother story, but is yeah. documented in my book. And two of those founders are Carrie and Nancy, the two women that I wrote the biography oh. of. So I really knew the history of the Quilt Alliance yeah. and its origins. And so that's just a super sort of like life has come full circle. Oh, gosh. Well, they, and they must have just been thinking behind the scenes, okay, we need to figure out a way to get this incredible person on our board. It's so great that they have you. Okay, good. So how, I know that you have traveled the world extensively, and not only for quilting, but for your previous job as well. But how does travel factor into the writing that you do today? You have to travel, you know, you have to get out there to see the quilts. So you have to go to the quilts. So I do do a lot of travel. And that's why books don't make any money, right? Because <laughs> I end up traveling a lot. Of course, places like Japan is very expensive. But yeah. I've also traveled to, um, you know, many, 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 many museums, homes to people to interview people who are collectors, going to their homes, going into the archives, in addition to the International Quilt Museum 
being on the campus of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, there's also an, a huge archive center there. So I've, and you know, it's not glamorous at all. It's boxes and boxes of stuff. And I've been there many times to read people's letters and go through archives. Also traveled recently to Washington, D.C., where I spent a full day inside the archives at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. And I was able to see about 20 quilts during the day. But also I was looking at archival material again going through box after box after box, which is pretty tedious, but you have to really love to kind of dig through that stuff. So travel is super important because you have to really, it you know, it changes your perspective. You can only learn so much from books and articles. You really have to get out and see, and particularly with quilts, you have to see them if, you know, anytime that it's possible. I'll chase a good quilt anytime I can. <laughs> Okay. And so were there any travel highlights throughout your life that were really memorable for you that really stick out? Definitely, you know, some of my moments in Japan. I, you know, traveled many times by myself. So that's always kind of interesting. I had one experience in Japan where I walked into a restaurant. It's just kind of, I think, a great description of how wonderful people are in Japan. And most restaurants are very, very small. You know, we think of restaurants in you know, the US and Canada and even in Europe, they're big, you know, you can seat 100 people or whatever. A lot of restaurants in Japan, you know, they seat 10 people or 20 people or 30 people, and sometimes six people. Yeah. And I went into this tiny restaurant, I was really hungry. I, I, as I said before, I don't speak Japanese. And I picked up the menu. And of course, it was all in Japanese. And it was all men in the restaurant, there were no women. And I, it was like one of those restaurants where they grill meat. And I just looked at him and, you know, I said beef. And he said, you know, gave me kind of a thumbs up. And we both just cracked up laughing. And it was just hysterical. And it was fantastic food. I said, just, you know, I just sat there and he just brought me food. And then I had this real panic because I couldn't read the menu that what if it was like Kobe beef or something and I was going to be looking at a $400 meal or something. So it was hysterical all the way around. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's great. But those so, are the kind of unexpected moments that are really fun. Yeah, absolutely. And you also were on the quiltshow.com with Ricky Timms and Alex Anderson. So, how did that come about? I was, that was such a treat. And I was, I went up last March and taped the show and they tape now in Dallas. So it's only about a four hour drive for me. So I did one segment on Japanese folk textiles, which was really fun to teach, sort of show all those show and tell and explain what the different textiles were and why and how you can tell one from the other. And it was really fun. That was with Alex. And, you know, she was eyeing all my textiles thinking she would, you know, maybe snitch a few to take (laughs) home. But no, I'm just kidding. So that was really great. And then I demoed kind of a string piecing improv technique that I have made a whole series of quilts on. And then again, just talked a lot about my books and my history, the history that I'm sharing. It was wonderful experience that that show is so well produced. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can we just talk about that technique for a little? So can you describe it to us? Sure. I've done a series of improv. I love, love, love 
doing improv. I love piecing quilts. I think that's maybe my first half of my quilting career. I loved applique and now I love piecing only. And Mm -hmm. so I piece together these very irregular shapes in tiny strips and then I square them up where they're even edges. And so you sort of have this chaos inside of straight lines. Yeah. And that is really attractive to me. And I have made a whole series in sort of a, almost like a log cabin, but a courthouse steps pattern. And was actually inspired to make these after seeing an antique African-American quilt owned by Corinne Riley in a collection that she had. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got sort of inspired to um, sort of make one in that style. So I was teaching that. And string piecing, as you know, is where you're so, 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 and then you Mm -hmm. cut the pieces apart later. So, Yeah. Yeah, sounds like so much fun. Okay, so let's talk about your speaking endeavors. Your website says, my lectures bring quilt history alive. So tell us about the lectures that you offer. It's really my favorite part of my job, I think. I just love doing it. I just feel like there are so many stories. And when you can talk about them, it's just a such a rich medium. You know, before the pandemic, of course, I would give one or two lectures a month because it involves so much traveling and I didn't want yeah. to travel that much. And also I'm not a teacher, so I don't teach classes or workshops. So my what I have to offer is not for everybody, right? Because most yeah fields want, if they're going to bring in a speaker, they want like a workshop. So I would do one or two lectures a month. And then the pandemic hit. And of course, we the whole world discovered Zoom and lectures are perfect for Zoom. So I went from one to like six a month, which has been so, so fun. But so I have several different topics. I still lecture widely on my Japanese history. I have topics. I have a couple of quirky sort of art history to antique quilt topics. I also lecture on American cotton, of course, and Native American history. And I just recently debuted a new one at QuiltCon on collectors called The Calling of Collectors about some of the most important collectors in the US, at least, on who have collected antique and contemporary quilts. Oh, wow. And so you also did a lecture with a co-presenter at QuiltCon. So tell us about that. I did. I did a co-lecture with David Owen Hastings. He's a good good friend of mine. And we were the very last lecture on Sunday afternoon and people still came. So we were very excited. David and I actually met at QuiltCon quite a while back, maybe about five years ago. And we just have so many things in common. Our aesthetic is so similar. We both love Japan and many, many other odd things that we've discovered over the years. Like we both love Marsha Durst and many other coincidences, but we just really our styles mesh. And so the two of us were talking a year ago at Phoenix at the end, and we just almost immediately just hit on this idea of talking about masterpieces that have influenced the modern quilt movement. Um, And some of who were some of the early gurus that we looked to in the modern quilt movement and why, and what, you know, picking 10 quilts and talking about those quilts and how they influenced modern quilters. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I do not know how you narrowed it down to 10, but it was an amazing presentation. I was there in person, and it was 
such a great photo on your Instagram feed of the two of you at QuiltCon on stage showing the back of your jackets. It was almost like like you both put your arms out and it was like, it, you were just like, <laughs> we're done. We did it. It was so great. And it was I, funny. I really enjoyed the lecture so much that I pulled out my phone and I was in my notes writing down the names of every single person you were talking about so I could go check yeah. them out further. So it, it was, was really, yes. really inspiring. And it was easy for us to choose them, to be honest, because our we're very similar aesthetic. And so we really kind of zeroed in on some of the same ideas. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. So this is the last question before the break. In your quilting world, what brings you joy? Oh, lately it's my long arm. <laughs> I bought a long arm just before the pandemic. I never, ever thought I would do such a crazy thing. And I did quilt on the machine for probably about five years before that. But it's really changed the way I think about machine quilting because it's just so easy to use. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it doesn't wear you out the way you know, yeah. pushing a quilt under a machine can just really take a lot of body strength. And I just, it, it just works perfectly on top of that. So it just brings me enormous joy. Yeah, great. Okay, so right now we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk all about Teresa's studio space, the two new books. We'll be right back. I'd love to have you join me on a future quilt travel adventure, so be sure to sign up for my email list. Go to quilteronfire.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and sign up right there. Or find me on your favorite social media platform and follow me. I'm everywhere online as the Quilter on Fire. Next up, the Festival of Quilts Birmingham trip is a go. Travelers are booking their flights and we start our tour of England and Wales on my birthday, July 25th in London. There are spots left, so if you need to check this one off your bucket list, call Judy from Opulent Quilt Journeys at 1-877-235-3767 to book your trip today. And we are back with Teresa Duryea Wong. Teresa, I'm so excited about this question I ask everyone. You know I have a lecture called Studio Magnificent, so I love to hear about people's studios. So tell us about your studio space. My studio is pretty magnificent. <laughs> I'm so lucky to have it. So my husband and I live in a super, super urban area. We have a three-story townhouse, as I said. We have no yard. We have very, very close neighbors. But on the third floor of our townhouse, I converted a bedroom into a studio. And it's pretty awesome. And that's where I have my long arm. I have a large, beautiful cutting table. Under the cutting table, I have space for my dog who sits with me every day. And, you know, I have really fantastic, super cheap IKEA cubbyhole shelving that was red, which they don't make anymore, sadly. Mm -hmm. And it's filled with fabric so I can see my fabrics. And I also sew with leather, oddly enough. So I have a leather sewing machine in there. It's pretty cramful. Um, it's a beautiful space. I have a huge design wall and great lighting. And I just feel so fortunate to be able to have this in my home. And it's my happy place for sure. Yeah, it sounds really good. And I can't really move off of this question without asking you, where are you when you do your writing? So I write, I have a tiny desk downstairs on our first floor. And I actually posted about this on Instagram the other day. My house is super, super, super modern. And it's very minimalist. I have don't have a lot of stuff. It's all black, white and gray. 
but I and I don't have a lot of antiques except for the desk that I work on. And it actually belonged to my grandfather, who was a doctor back in the days when they made house calls. And so this desk is very old and my dad used it. And this is where I work right here. And it's sort of crammed in between the couch and the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sounds so great. Yeah. Okay. So this is another question that I really love asking all of my guests. What is your favorite time of day? I'm a complete and total morning person. So my favorite time of day is five o'clock in the morning. Pretty much every day I get up early and a lot of times I will just, you know, go straight to the computer and start writing. It's quiet. The whole house is quiet. The, you know, the outside world is quiet and I'm just really fresh in the morning. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'll either do that or I'll, I'll go upstairs and start quilting on something, but yeah, definite morning person. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. So I promised everyone that we would get into your new books. There's two of them, but let's talk about the first one, Sewing and Survival, Native American Quilts from 1880 to 2022. Yeah. So this is a, I started researching before the pandemic and it's just something that really struck me as a part of our quilt history that a lot of us don't know anything about. And quilting is actually really prevalent among Native Americans today and has been for a long time. And so I just really became intrigued by this story and, you know, wanted to understand how this took hold. How did quilting come into Native American communities and why? And what kind of quilts did they make? And, you know, how did they learn? And so I did a lot of research and have put together this book starting, I start around 1880. There were, of course, people quilting before that time. But I explain how, first of all, I try to bust a lot of myths that it wasn't non-Native women who taught Native Americans how to sew. I mean, Native Americans have survived on this land for thousands of years and definitely knew how to sew and make all kinds of things, weaving, pottery, incredible arts and crafts, as well as many other things for survival. But during the years of so much turmoil, particularly in the U.S. with, you know, the so-called Indian Wars, you know, their lives were really ripped apart and so much death and so much generational loss that it is possible during those years that some of those skills were not passed down. So missionary women came into the reservations or into the communities and did play a role in introducing the idea of quilts. And so that's really one of the main influences back around 1880. So I kind of pick up the story there and tell how this happened and how it has continued to happen and play such an important part in Native American traditions today. Yeah, fascinating. Love it. Okay. And so we talked a little bit about what's swirling around in your mind for future projects, but if there was something you could tackle that was like something in the world that you want to bust that myth about, what would it be? So as I, you know, I told you, I spent a lot of times with, with cotton farmers and particularly in Texas, I visited cotton farmers in central Texas and all over North Texas and West Texas. And just this past year in the cotton crop that was harvested in, at the end of 2022, 80% of that cotton crop was ruined or burned up, as we say, not from fire, but from heat and lack of water. Yeah. And so the cotton industry is devastated. And this is all because of climate change. And so the impact that climate change has had since just the three, four years ago when I was on those farms has been amazing, destructive. 
Uh, people often say, well, you know, so what? American cotton farmers and other farmers have crop insurance and they, you know, they get handouts from the U.S. government. But if your insurance helps you break even, you know, that's not sustainable. Yeah. yeah. And so I've been reading about this and so many cotton farmers are moving away from cotton this year for 2023 because the same weather conditions are predicted to be the same. And so this is incredible. At the same time, cotton was burning up in Texas, it was flooding in Pakistan. And Pakistan is like fourth or fifth largest cotton producer because of climate change. So I'm very interested in this story and how fast it's changing our world. And what does this mean for quilting cotton? I think, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually it is going to have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. So I'd love to see that book one day. I can't wait. It'll be a few years, right? Because you got to do all the research still, but it will take a while, but it is, yeah, something that's just changing right before our eyes. Yeah, absolutely. At unheard of speed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now it's time to get a little lighthearted. We're going to do the lightning round, Robin. It's a series of rapid fire questions and it's super fun. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So what is your favorite tool or notion? Definitely the seam ripper, right? It saves <laughs> saves our lives. The great That's thing good. about quilting. Yeah. You know, other crafts you cannot undo. <laughs> Not everyone says their seam ripper is their friend or favorite. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> okay. Do you have any weird, funny, or crazy quilting moments? You know, I give a lot of lectures on Zoom. And so you do see a lot of unusual things, especially in the early days when we weren't as skilled about Zoom. Yep. And I have seen men walking in the background wrapped in towels, maybe coming out of the oh, shower no. as they <laughs> pass the bathroom or whatever. I have seen quilters change their clothes, you know, not really realizing that they're on camera, maybe, you know, not not realizing how far the camera can see. Yeah, lots of funny things. It's just a, it's a wide, wide world of Zoom. (laughs) Okay, has there been a mentor who has really influenced you along your quilting journey? Definitely my best friend of 25 years, Amy Gerhikian. She's the one that taught me how to quilt. And, you know, we have traveled together. She has gone with me on so, so many of my quilting lecture trips. We've gone on fabric shopping trips. We have attended festival every year together. And we still talk every day and still the best of friends. And she's an enormous mentor to me. And I bounce so many ideas off of her. And she's a great listener and a great pal. Oh, it's so nice to have that. What are some of your favorite collections of things? Well, I'm an antique quilt collector. So I love my collection, but I I love the collections of other people. As I talked about, I have this new lecture on collecting. I'm enamored with the collections of Joanna Rose, who collected thousands of quilts, Eli Leon, who collected 3000 African American quilts. I'm just fascinated by people that you know, really dedicate themselves to a certain focus, like collecting quilts. Okay. And do you have any furry friends in your studio? I do. My pal, my dog, Tom, had him for about nine years, and he's never really very far from my side when I'm at home. And uh, he's just a real sweetie and sits in my studio with me all the time. Oh, that is so sweet. And I have my Luna laying right beside me as well. She's sound asleep. I can't believe she's lasted this long. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. So since we are on the topic of dogs, of course, we have to talk about your 
your latest book. So which one was the latest? Is this one the latest or the last one the latest? I was working on them simultaneously, but this one has already has just come out like this week. And so I have collaborated with Quilt Folk to produce a new special publication. We're calling it a supplement to Quilt Folk called Quilt Folk Dogs. And it's really beautiful, fun magazine. And it has dog quilts in it, as well as photographs of dogs with quilts. So it's an idea I had years ago, and I pitched it to Mike. We sent out a call for entries to the public, and we got hundreds of entries. And we culled through those to pick the greatest dog quilts and the greatest photos of dogs. And you know, there's just so much bad news out there every day. And this is such a warm and fun treasure to just, I mean, who doesn't love a dog, right? So it's really a great little collection that I highly recommend. (laughs) That sounds great. And of course, you can get it at the Quilt Folk website. So okay, that was so fun and wonderful. Thank you for braving the lightning round, Robin. So (laughs) I've mentioned your website already a couple times, Teresa Durye Wong, and I'm going to spell it out T-E-R-E-S-A. Durye is D-U-R-Y-E-A. W-O-N-G, no hyphen. And so that's the website where you can find everything that Teresa has to offer. But where's the best place for quilters to connect with you on social media? I love Instagram. So I post on Instagram a lot. And my Instagram handle is at third underscore floor underscore quilts. Nailed it. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so that's easy to find. Third floor quilts with a couple underscores in between. So what's in a name, Teresa? Why did you name your Instagram handle third floor quilts? Well, I, when I first set it up, I was, you know, trying to find something creative and my studio is on the third floor of our home, which is a bit unusual. (laughs) I can see, I have a view of the downtown Houston skyline from my studio. So I thought that third floor was a great way to sort of give it a fun business name, if you will. Yeah, it's perfect. Okay. Now, as we wrap up, what do you want quilters to take away most from our conversation today? Well, I would love it if people would, you know, take time to think about our American quilt history and our international quilt history and how did quilts come into your community and even your own families, you know, to take a look back and to think about it. But I'm particularly hopeful that a lot of people will learn more about Native American quilting history. I think it's an area of our quilt history that is definitely not well known. And so I'm hoping that more people will. There's a lot of research done on this about 30 years ago and nothing in between. So yeah. I'm kind of excited to bring this this topic back to the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what a great way to end the podcast. So Teresa, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be a part of your podcast, Brandy. So that was my show with Teresa Durye Wong. I love how she made the transition through her early career from TV news to taking her love of writing and becoming a freelance journalist right through her whole life. And she brought her passion for writing right into the quilting world. So one thing that really delighted me was seeing her lecture in person at QuiltCon with David Owen Hastings. It was an incredible kind of retrospective of innovative quilters throughout the years of QuiltCon. So if you ever get a chance to see one of her lectures, I highly recommend you grab a ticket early in the event because they will sell out or book her for your guild as a speaker on Zoom. Today, I really enjoyed sharing her story with you. 
Now, are you a quilter who wants to get creative and take a step into textile art? Well, you've come to the right place. Square One Bootcamp Stepping Into Textile Art is three hours of a creative workshop where you make a small textile art piece start to finish with your own original art element as the feature. And the best part, it's only $37 and you get the content in the student portal forever. This is the perfect place for you to get your creative groove on. Go to quilteronfire.com to see the next dates to register. Oh, and one more thing. Before we go, I'm going back to London on July 25th. It's coming soon. Grab a friend and book your summer holiday with me. I know this itinerary inside out so you can relax and enjoy while every moment is planned with the quilter in mind. This is such a wonderful sightseeing holiday ending with the Festival of Quilts, and I'd love to have you join me. Book your spot today by calling Judy at Opulent Quilt Journeys, 1-877-235-3767. Or check out the full itinerary at quilteronfire.com. Thank you for listening to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Until next time, dream big and have fun in the studio with the Quilter on Fire.